So Saturday afternoons here at Grace Church, we are working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And in today's passage, we're going to see what Jesus teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And marriage, divorce, and remarriage can be painful topics, I would guess for some of you here tonight, because of what you've experienced in the past. And so I'm praying that God will use this time to to meet you, comfort you, strengthen you, help you, that you will leave here knowing you've met the living God in in your pain. Because divorce is heartbreaking. It can be absolutely devastating. And we want those of you who have been through that to be blessed, touched, encouraged. It is important that we study these topics, no matter what state of life you're in. Those of you who are young people here, it's crucial that you understand what the Bible teaches about marriage as you think about the possibility of you pursuing marriage. What does God say about it? It's crucial. If you're single, if you're not married, it's crucial that you understand whether you are going to get married or not so that you can be encouraging and giving good counsel to your brothers and sisters and the family here at Grace Church as they're involved in their their marriages. If you are married, it's important for you to understand marriage so that your commitment to your marriage will be all the stronger. I'm praying that'll happen this afternoon. And then, like I said, for those of you who've been through divorce, it's important to understand what God says so that you can meet the Lord in the truth of his scriptures and be strengthened and comforted and helped by him. So let's turn to Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. I've got to give you the background to this passage so that you'll see what's going on. Jesus has been talking about money. Remember, that was last Saturday afternoon. He told us that it's wise to use our money to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's a wise use of money because it'll bring us joy in Christ, even more joy in Christ, forever. It's a wise use of money. And Jesus concludes that section about money by saying, you cannot serve two masters. You're either going to serve money or you're going to serve God. But you cannot serve both. It's impossible. Look at verse 13, Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's where last week's passage ended. Now, look at what happens next. Verse 14. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. 
everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now let's start with this question. Back to the money issue. How did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' teaching about money? Look again at verse 14. It's shocking. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees were lovers of money. What brought them the greatest joy in their lives was money. What they thought about the most was money. What they lived for when they got up out of bed in the morning was money. They did not love or serve God. They loved and served money. And when Jesus preached in these previous verses that it's wise, wiser to use your money to lead people to faith, and when he preached that you can't serve God and money, they were threatened. And so they responded by ridiculing Jesus. Ridiculing, that's a strong word. It means they mocked him. They laughed at him. Scorned him. Made fun of him. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were ridiculing him. That's how they responded to Jesus' teaching about money. And verse 15 answers the question, how did Jesus respond to the Pharisees ridiculing? Read verse 15 again. And he said to them, Jesus was so bold, he looked him right in the eye. Here's what he said to them. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So the Pharisees justified themselves before men. Maybe what that meant was they were saying, our money, our wealth, it's God's reward for how righteous we are. It's God's reward, and because it's God's reward to us, he wants us to keep it and hoard it and use it for ourselves. It's all because of how righteous we are. So they were justifying themselves before people. And Jesus says that even if they can justify themselves before people, it makes no difference. God is the one who's important. God knows their hearts. God knows that what they love is not God. They love money, which makes them an abomination to God. He's saying people might exalt you for having piles of money that you keep for yourself. You have to understand what is exalted by people is so often an abomination before God. And that's the case here. So the Pharisees responded to Jesus' teaching by ridiculing him, and Jesus says their love of money is an abomination to God. Then in verses 16 and 17, I think what Jesus is doing is he's giving two reasons why the Pharisees' response is so serious, so tragic, so horrifying. First reason, 
It's because they are rejecting God's Messiah and kingdom. They're not not just rejecting some man standing here. They're rejecting God's Messiah and God's kingdom. Look again at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since John the Baptist, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. So what are the law and the prophets? That's the Old Testament scriptures. And the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, they are pointing ahead towards the coming of the Messiah, God's kingdom, God's king. So the whole Old Testament is looking ahead to what God is going to do in the future. Now, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. And so when John the Baptist passes off the scene, Jesus comes onto the scene. We'll see that in all the Gospels. Jesus comes onto the scene, and he comes preaching, the kingdom of God is here. He is the promised Messiah, and he's here. In Jesus, God's saving rule and reign is here on earth like it's never been before. God is here on earth in the presence of Jesus Christ. Unbelievable. The Messiah's come. And Jesus says, everyone is forcing their way into the kingdom. I think that probably means that because God's kingdom is here, because the Messiah is here, because people can be forgiven, because people can be reconciled to God, people can experience the presence of God filling their hearts, filling their lives. People are rushing into the kingdom. They're turning from their sin. They're putting their trust in the Messiah. They're entering into the kingdom. They're being reconciled to God. People are rushing into the kingdom. But not the Pharisees. The Pharisees are rejecting the Messiah and the kingdom. I mean, think about this. What what God had promised for thousands of years, what's coming, what's coming, what's coming, what's coming, it comes. And the Pharisees who purport to believe the Old Testament, they don't at all, but they act like they do. They make a lot of money off of all that. They're rejecting the Messiah that had been promised all through the Old Testament. God was there in the person of Jesus. God's kingdom was here. By turning from their sin and trusting Jesus, people could be completely forgiven and reconciled to God, but the Pharisees wanted their money. They didn't want to turn from their money to Jesus. They wanted to hold on to their money. They didn't want to trust Jesus. They wanted to ridicule Jesus. They're rejecting God's Messiah and kingdom, what had been promised for thousands of years. That's one reason the Pharisees' response was so serious, rejecting God's Messiah and kingdom. Second reason, it's because everything prophesied in the Law and the Prophets would happen. Everything. I think that's the point of verse 17. Jesus says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Jesus is saying that nothing prophesied, nothing promised in the Old Testament, law and the prophets, would become void or would fail or would not happen. It will all happen. Everything in the Old Testament will happen. For example, forgiveness and the very presence of God 
promised, would be experienced by all those who trust the Messiah. It's a promise. And, tragically, judgment and eternal punishment will be poured out upon those who don't. It's promised in the Law and the Prophets, and every single dot in the Old Testament is going to be fulfilled, including those. Which means that if the Pharisees keep holding on to their sin, if nothing changes, if they don't turn from their sin, turn from their love of money, and trust Jesus as their treasure, if they don't do that, then they will not be forgiven. The cross will not have paid for their sins. They will still be under the penalty, the curse of God. They will be punished by God forever. That's the second reason why this is so heartbreakingly serious, the Pharisees' response. It's because everything prophesied in the Law and the Prophets would happen. So those are the two reasons why the Pharisees' response is so serious. It's because they're rejecting God's Messiah and kingdom first, and then second, because everything promised, everything prophesied in the Law and the Prophets would happen. And that brings us to verse 18. Divorce and remarriage, what does that have to do with what Jesus has been talking about? Right? It just sounds like just a random, who put that in there? And out of nowhere. But when we come to verses that we don't understand how they fit, we need to stop and say, how do they fit? The fact that I can't see it yet doesn't mean it doesn't fit. Jesus said this verse next. So why does Jesus bring up divorce and remarriage? Let's read verse 18 again. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So why bring up divorce and remarriage and adultery here? I think this is the reason. I think it's that he's pointing out another area of sin which the Pharisees and and most everyone in the crowd needs to turn from and be forgiven for. Here's why I say that. Most Jews at that time, this is shocking, because this is not what the Old Testament taught at all, but most Jews at that time would have said that a husband can divorce his wife and marry someone else for trivial reasons. Seriously, like, like burning dinner. That was enough of a reason. Or someone else is more attractive to me now. Most of those Pharisees and most of those in the crowd would have thought, that's appropriate. Not at all what the Old Testament taught. And that teaching is completely contrary to God's will. So Jesus is giving this as an illustration of another area in which what is exalted among people Most of all those people in the crowd would have said, that's right, burned dinner, sorry. Most of all those would have thought, you know. And and Jesus is saying, what's exalted among men is an abomination to God. The fact that people applaud you doesn't mean anything. Money, divorce and remarriage doesn't mean anything. God's what's important. So verse 18 isn't a random thought out of nowhere. It's a very powerful Additional illustration 
of how far people had strayed from God, even the Jewish people, and how God has sent Jesus, looking for the one lost sheep, like Aaron preached a few weeks ago, to bring people back. So they turn from their sin, trust Jesus the Messiah, are forgiven and reconciled to God. So that's the flow of thought of these verses, verses 14 through 18. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage, because this verse raises lots of questions, as it should. And I'm going to give you kind of a broad brush, some answers. I'm not going to answer all the questions. There's lots of specifics, but I hope that this will be helpful. I want to give you a couple of key points about marriage that spring from this passage that I think are crucial. And before I get into, the, into verse 18, let me just say very clearly that in the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not between two men, and it's not between two women. I'm sure some of you deal with same-sex attraction. I, I know some of you do. We love you. We're glad you're here. We all have our areas of sin that we deal with. Anybody here not have an area of sin we're dealing with? No, we all do. Same-sex attraction is one. It's not who you are. It's a sin you battle. Like, I've got my sins I battle. We all have our sins that we battle. And, and God's Word is clear. That is not how God's made us to live. That's not how God's made us to have marriage. That's not what the Bible teaches. And He says that to us because He loves us. And Jesus' death on the cross, if this is something, if you're not trusting Christ yet and you're, you're pursuing that lifestyle, Jesus loves you. He's pursuing you. That's why he has you here. And he would love to have you turn to him from that area of sin and ask him to forgive you, ask him to change you, ask him to fill you. He could change you instantly from that, as he does sometimes, or over time. It could be a lifetime, Right? Some of us have been freed from sin instantly, right? Others of us, we're going to be battling it the rest of our lives. That's how God works. But He will work. So in the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. So what is God's will regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage? A couple of key points I want to share with you. First of all, verse 18 makes it clear. God's will is that we honor our marriage vows. Look at verse 18 again, and notice the word adultery that's used here. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. <gasps> that would have made the crowd gasp. Serious. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, Jesus does give some exceptions, which we're going to look at in a moment. Okay? But for now, I want you to feel the weightiness of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if someone divorces their spouse and marries someone else, then they commit adultery. What is adultery? Or why is it adultery? It's because they've broken their marriage vows. They've made vows to this person, and they are breaking those vows. They've sinned against their spouse, and they've sinned against God because they made the vows before God. I mean, think about marriage vows. I've done a couple of weddings recently. We've had a number of people who wanted to get, couples wanted to get married here. The marriage vows are the most important part of the wedding ceremony, right? This is like, whoosh, it's all coming down right here. This is where it's happening. 
It involves a man and a woman making a massive, massive commitment to each other. I mean, let me just read them to you. Here's the traditional vows, which I think are so spot on. I take you to be my wife or husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or worse, makes no difference, for richer, for poorer, no difference, in sickness and in health, it doesn't make any difference, to love and to cherish until death parts us according to God's will. And so I promise you my faithfulness. Powerful. Powerful. Makes no difference if things become worse instead of being better, or if you end up poor instead of rich, or whether your spouse becomes sick instead of healthy. Makes no difference to love and to cherish you until death parts us. Do you feel that? Whew, it's amazing. Benjamin Warfield. Let me tell you about Benjamin Warfield. He was a world-famous theology professor in the late 1800s. And he met Annie Kincaid, fell in love with her, and they got married, 1876. He promised, I will love you and I will cherish you until death parts us. Tragically, on their honeymoon, they were out hiking when a terrible storm blew in and Annie was struck by lightning and permanently paralyzed. Permanently paralyzed. He promised, though, I will love you and I will cherish you until death parts us. And he did. For the next 39 years, he cared for her. Because of her needs, he wasn't able to leave the house for more than two hours at a time. So he would be at home studying, preparing his lectures, writing books, caring for her. Then he'd go and teach his class and come back as quickly as he could so he could continue to love her and to, to care for her for 39 years. Do you feel the weightiness of the marriage commitment? I mean, the marriage vows are both wonderful, just exhilarating, and weighty. Weighty. You stand at the altar. You're looking your beloved in, in the eyes. And you promise before God, I am going to love you, and I'm going to cherish you till death parts us. It's amazing. That's what God wants marriage to be. God's will is that we honor our marriage vows. But now what about divorce? And what about remarriage? Now, people who love Jesus and study the Bible have some different conclusions on this. I'm going to share my conclusions. What I would encourage you to do is to search the Scriptures to see if you see in the Scriptures what I think the Scriptures are saying. So you open up the Bible and you study for yourself. Okay, my job is to open up the Bible to you and say, I'm seeing this, 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 this. Here's where I put them together. Now you study, all right? We don't want anybody to believe anything just because the pastor says it. You need to believe it because the book says it. So I'll share with you my conclusions, 
you study the Word. So here's a second principle that I see in Scripture. Someone can divorce and remarry if their spouse has been sexually unfaithful. Someone can. Here's an exception that Jesus mentions. Someone can divorce and remarry if their spouse has been sexually unfaithful. We can see this from what Jesus says in Matthew 19.9. It's very similar to what we just read in Luke, except there's an exception that Jesus puts in here. Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, except in the case of her committing sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Sexual immorality means sexual involvement with someone under the, other than your spouse. So Jesus is saying that if your spouse is sexually unfaithful to you, then you can divorce them and marry another. It's an exception brought in here. You don't have to divorce them. And for Christ's sake and for the sake of your vows, it would be appropriate to press in and, and do what you can, do all you can to, to obviously forgive. We're all called to forgive, but to, to re- restore, to reconcile, to rebuild trust. But there are cases where if the spouse is not willing, that's not possible. Restoration is not possible in some cases. And in those cases, Jesus allows you to divorce and remarry. But our longing should be to see the marriage restored. Years ago, Jan and I knew a couple in Silicon Valley where, where we were before we came here. He was very high up, upper management in a very big, successful tech company. And, um, and his wife was godly, praying, loving, fun, amazing woman. Uh, but he had an affair. Husband had an affair with the secretary. Broke her heart. And she forgave him. And he did it again. And she forgave him. And she prayed, and she prayed, and she wept. And things just kept going steadily downhill. And finally, they ended up moving. She she moved out with the kids. He was living apart from her. She was praying and praying and praying and heartbroken, and forgiving, and praying. And I'm not sure how much time went by, but God changed his heart, completely changed his heart. He came back, and she welcomed him and forgave him. Oh, they had to rebuild trust. They had to rebuild their marriage, lots of rebuilding. They are still married today, happily, happily married today. It doesn't always happen that way. It did this time. Our longing, our, our first response should be, Oh Lord, restore this marriage. For the glory of your name, restore this marriage. That's our first response. So even if there's been sexual unfaithfulness, The goal is to see the marriage restored, but since it's not always possible, Jesus allows for divorce and remarriage. So one exception to what Jesus has said in Luke 16, 18, is the case of sexual unfaithfulness with one of the 
spouses. I believe there's another exception, very important. This is the third point I want to bring up. Someone can divorce and remarry if their spouse has broken the marriage covenant in other ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul mentions another scenario where there's an exception. This is where a believer is married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever walks away from the marriage. What should the believer do? Look at 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, Paul says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So when Paul says the brother or sister is not enslaved, what he means is that you are free to divorce and remarry in the Lord. Okay? Because if the unbelieving partner walks away from the marriage, they're, they're breaking the marriage covenant. It's broken. It's broken. And so you're free to divorce and remarry. You don't have to pray, seek the Lord, forgive, always need to forgive. You don't have to divorce and remarry, but you are free to do so. Notice also the phrase, in such cases. That's one case. There's other cases that are like that where the marriage covenant is, is broken, which would free you to divorce and remarry. So what might be some other ways that the marriage covenant could be broken? This takes lots of thought and lots of prayer to discern. What might that be? It's not that, well, my, my spouse is just really hard to communicate with. Them being a poor communicator is not a covenant breaker. Okay, it doesn't break the covenant. It's not, well, my spouse is really hard to love, so that's broken the marriage covenant. No, no, that's not broken the marriage covenant. It's not, well, my spouse makes me want to be interested in this other person more. That doesn't break the covenant. Okay, so I'm not talking about those kinds of things. Paul would not consider those things in other cases. That would not be the cases he's talking about. So what, what might he mean? Well, he's just mentioned one. If your spouse abandons you, that would, that would break the covenant. If your spouse threatens you and the children, that's a breaching of what the marriage covenant entails. If your spouse abuses you or the children and the children or the children, that's a breaking of the covenant that they made with you. Or if your spouse is pursuing other dangerous behavior, you need lots of discernment here. So those kinds of actions can break the covenant. Now let me be clear. If you're in a marriage where your husband is, is abusing you, it's right for you to separate, to step away for the sake of safety of yourself and your children. Step away from that marriage. We will help you talk to your home group leader, talk to the elders. We will step into that situation and protect you and help you get this worked out. Don't feel like you need to stay in that abusive situation. You can step away and still be faithful to your marriage, but stepping away is what God would call you to do. I'm not saying divorce yet. That may be where this is going to go, but not necessarily. So be safe. Pursue restoration. But because that's not always possible, there are times where divorce and remarriage would be permissible in that situation. So, there are some exceptions. Sexual unfaithfulness, 
other situations where the spouse breaks the marriage covenant, not just makes the marriage difficult, but breaks the marriage covenants. And then the other spouse would be free to divorce and remarry. And this raises another question. What if you have pursued divorce and remarriage outside of those exceptions? What if you've pursued divorce and remarriage in a way that Jesus would say, you committed adultery? What should you do? What would he call you to do? That's my fourth point. If you have divorced and remarried unbiblically, confess this to God, trust Jesus to forgive you, be assured of his forgiveness and love, and ask him to bless your present marriage. That's what you should do. Maybe you knew you were disobeying God. Maybe you had no idea until this afternoon that you were disobeying God. But now you know. So what should you do? Here's the question. What should you do? Take some time. Take some time to pray, you and the Lord, individually and with your spouse. Take some time to pray. Seek his face. Confess your sin to God. Don't, don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it or justify it. Confess it. Confess it to him as sin. It was sin. We've all sinned. Join the club, right? Here we all are at the foot of the cross together. Confess it as sin. It is sin. And look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Amazing promise to cling to at times like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. God loves you, cares for you. No condemnation, forgiveness, and cleansing. So confess your sin to God. Trust that Jesus' death can cover all of that sin and all of your sins, all of them. Be assured of his forgiveness and ask God to bless your present marriage. Ask him to bless your present marriage. Don't leave your present marriage. You've You've committed to this person. Ask God to bless your present marriage. The grace of God. His arms are open to you. He will forgive you. He will love you. We've all been there needing to be forgiven, needing to be assured of his love, and he will. Now, one last question. This could raise a thought in, in somebody's mind. I want to make sure we address it. Okay, so what you're telling me is, I want to get out of my marriage. I want to marry this other person, and so I can go ahead and do that, 
and then confess it to Jesus, and I'll be completely forgiven, right? If, if that's in your heart, you're in a very dangerous place spiritually. How can you think about talking to Jesus about paying for your sins again? Here, here's the picture. Jesus, I want to sin in this particular way. I know I shouldn't, but I, I, I'm going to. And, and I've got some nails here I brought. I've got some, some of the long ones. And I've got a cross here, and I've got a hammer. Can I go do this and then come back and, and nail you to the cross one more time? Make you suffer and die for my sin so I can be forgiven? Anybody who would consider sinning and then asking Jesus to forgive you, you don't know what the cross means. It's likely that you've never wept at the foot of the cross before. It's likely that you've never trembled at the fact that you are a sinner deserving of God's judgment and Jesus has come to save you and you love your Savior. It's doubtful that you've ever felt that. You're in a dangerous place spiritually if that kind of thought comes into your mind. Do you understand that? Dangerous place. Oh, your conscience is seared. Oh, you're blind. Your heart is hard, hard. So what should you do? Turn from your sin that you're planning. Turn to Jesus Christ. Even now, his arms are open wide to you. See the nails? Nail scars? I've done it. Come. And come to him. Confess it. My heart's hard. I'm blind. My conscience is seared. I want to go do this sin. I think so lightly of the cross. Help me. Forgive me. Change me. Wash me. He will. Oh, he will. He's done it for all of us. He will wash you. He will cleanse you. He will change you. He will change your heart. He will give you grace to love your wife, love your husband, care for your wife, care for your husband. Obey his commands. Jesus is standing before you with everything you need. Turn to him. Confess. Ask for his help. He will give you all the grace you need. Let's stand. Pray. We want to surrender to you completely this afternoon, Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. You loved us and gave yourself up for us. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for cleansing. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. We all need to come to you afresh and bend the knee before you and receive from you. So here we are, surrendering. Pour out your grace. Pour out your mercy. Pour out your forgiveness, we pray. In Jesus' name.